Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 87 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Elia Don Johnson, author of the Spirit Binder series and the Zephyr Hollis series. Her latest novel, The Summer Prince, is set in Brazil 400 years in the future, in a pyramid city where young men vie for the honor of being elected king for a year, after which they are ritually sacrificed. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks E.C. Myers and Emily Asher Perrin join us to discuss the new movie Star Trek Into Darkness. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Elia Don Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hey. Okay, so your new book is called The Summer Prince. So what's that about? It is a novel that takes place in what is now Brazil, uh, on the coast of the state that is now Bahia, but 400 years in the future, in the aftermath of a global apocalypse. And it's basically in a matriarchal society that's a utopian experiment run by women of color. And uh, basically women have power, but every five years they elect a king and um, it's a summer king and he rules and is, you know, the ultimate rock star, sex god, political figurehead for a year. And then at the end of the year, he's ritually killed. But it's basically a year in the life of the summer king as told from the point of view of a girl, June, who's a young artist in that society. And they kind of end up collaborating on spectacular public political art projects together. Uh, and it takes place in Brazil, as you said, and you said that sort of some of your uh, sister Lauren's tales uh, helped inspire it. Like what, what yes. kind of crazy tales of Brazil does she have? Oh, she has she has so many. She studied abroad in um, the north of Brazil in the state of Pará her junior year of college. And we ended up, my sister and my cousin and I ended up going her senior year of college uh, to like help my sister study for her uh, research for her uh, senior year thesis there. And so when my sister, my cousin and I went, we went to the south of Brazil to Sao Paulo and to Rio. So part of it was my experiences with the two of them in Rio and Sao Paulo, but also my sister's stories. Because just for example, she, uh, part of her trip was in involved in uh, going on a riverboat down the Amazon. And they would, um, she would describe how in order to wash her hair, she had to jump in the river, climb up, soap up her hair, jump in the river again, <laughs> climb back up, <laughs> you know, put the conditioner on her hair, jump in the river again. Like this is, this is how they bathe. Um, she went hiking in the woods and, you know, in the rainforest and uh, like didn't wear closed shoes, which was a big mistake because she actually has this incredible photograph of this monstrous centipede or millipede that somehow found its way into her Tiva and bit her foot <laughs> and it swole up like crazy. And then, you know, she was okay, but my gosh, how terrifying. But, you know, the kind of first spark that she experienced of like my novel that came from her experience was when she would, uh, as part of her kind of study abroad, um, research she would take bags of food and go into villages and basically say you know in exchange for groceries for a week will someone let me string up my hammock and talk to you and apparently this is something that researchers you know anthropologists in brazil will do a lot and 
they so she went to this little town called Palmatis Dois, which was named after Palmatis, the famous Quilombo uh, escaped slave town, and it was of African diasporic people living in this town, and they named it after this famous uh, Quilombo, and she. And I wish you remember she told me about that. And so then like years later, when I was thinking about the city and I wanted to be with African diasporic people and I wanted it to evoke the history of that, I realized that I could call it, you know, sort of an homage to that and that small town my sister stayed in, Palmatis Trace. Yeah, I mean, you say in the book, it says that kind of the culture of Palmeras Trace comes from uh, Palm- the legend of Palmeras you just mentioned, Catholicism mm-hmm. and uh, Candomblé, if I'm saying that right. Yeah. Um, could you talk about what is Candomblé and how did that play a role in this story? Um, Candomblé is the traditional African religion that uh, slaves practiced and, you know, African descendants in Brazil practice. But Candomblé in the book is related to Candomblé now, but it's not the same thing at all. And uh, But I wanted to have it so that the people of that society had a connection with their past. So they had a connection with Yamanja and Ashala and uh, the the gods of their people. Well, yeah, I mean, the people in Palmeiras Trace, they worship the Orishas, you said? It's uh, O-R-I-X-A-S. Yeah. yes. Um, and there are actually, there are a lot of words that I think most readers will find unfamiliar in the book. Uh, you have Wakas and the Verde and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Which of those did you make up and which of them came from real places? Well, I mean, to some extent, I made all of them up. Like the Verde, which is spelled B-E-R-D-E, it's, you know, it just means green. And I just use it because of the physical way the bottom tier of the pyramid, which is what Virgie was referring to, is referring to the bottom tier where the poorest people live, is green because they have these giant algae bats. So I was just trying to come up with slang that kind of felt real, but is really specific to the, the fictional place I was making up. Um, the same thing with wakas. Wakas is an interesting one, though, because its basis isn't Portuguese. It's uh, Japanese. Because part of the other thing that I was attempting to do with this was to create a culture where you could see different um, immigrant strains. Because uh, Brazil right now has like one of the largest populations of diasporic Japanese people uh, in the world. I think it might actually be like the largest population. Um, and that was what my sister was studying in Sao Paulo when she was there, because both of us speak Japanese and she obviously speaks Portuguese. So, um, and so I was really fascinated by, you know, like how, how much like they, the Japanese Brazilians like pulled on both of those cultures and how, like how many Japanese people there were in Brazil, which had never really occurred to me. And so in this book, I, I had it so that because the cities of Sao Paulo and Rio have kind of been destroyed in this, this long ago apocalypse, a lot of the immigration moved to uh, this part of uh, Eastern Brazil. And so basically the terms like waka, terms like kiri are from Japanese. And so it's all kind of integrated and it feels to the young characters sort of like the same thing, but they come from different places. Uh-huh. I, I noticed there's an audiobook of this. Did they get all those names right? Did they consult with you at all? How did that work? Yeah, actually, I was consulted a lot on the audiobook, which is great. We went through, I mean, I think almost always audiobooks, especially if there's a lot of words that the uh, actors might not know, they'll send a giant word list to the writer. So they sent to me this like 10 page document of all the words in the book. I was like, Oh my goodness. So I just try to really sound them out phonetically uh, to help out. But they also hired, like we made a point of hiring actors who are familiar with Brazilian Portuguese. And so 
uh, could speak that more easily than somebody with no familiarity at all. Well, and yeah, and you said that um, uh, Palmeiras Tres, it's this pyramid city. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw you uh, give a presentation about this book at uh, a bookstore called Books of Wonder. And you mentioned that this is a real, there's a real plan for these pyramid cities and they just need to invent a couple more building materials and they'll be good to go. Uh, could you yeah. talk about that? Um, so basically, you know, of course, my ideas come from all these different places. And so part of like the random chunk that met the other chunk of the social politics of the society was me watching a documentary on the Discovery Channel a while back. And it was all about sort of extreme building materials. It's one of those Discovery Channel shows. But this one was really fascinating to me because it was talking about vertical cities. And it was in the context of ecological cities, cities that can be sustainable. And this Japanese design company or architecture firm had come up with a plan for a giant pyramid city, like like miles in diameter, (laughs) that basically are constructed of a bunch of mini pyramids and each of the tubes that kind of connect them are transport tubes and skyscrapers would hang from the joints and just every single thing about this sounded amazingly cool and it was also self-sustaining in the case of the design by the Japanese firm it was self-sustaining because it was supposed to be in Tokyo Bay and the waves coming through the bottom of the pyramid would provide power for the city which is a really interesting idea but not one that I ended up going with the interest, the funny thing about it was that this whole city looked amazing, but they said that, but we can't actually build it because we need a certain kind of nanotechnology that is sure to be invented soon, but we don't actually have it. So until then, we aren't going to have wonderful pyramid cities. But I thought it was a short leap for me to imagine that somehow it had come up with this wonderful pyramid uh, nanotechnology. And so uh, the the women the original founding mothers of Palmatis Trace could have built their city with it. Mm-hmm. And a, a pyramidal structure sort of really nicely reflects the social stratification as well. Yes. Um, and in the book, the lower levels, we said is the Verde where they it's sort of the, the workers grow. They're the, these giant algae tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, like what is actually, how does the city run? Like what does the algae do and how does that all work? Um, my idea was that um, the algae basically breaks down chemicals to produce pure hydrogen gas to power fuel cells. The, my, basically, the thing about fuel cells, which I find interesting, is that they're, if you get hydrogen, they're incredibly efficient and clean way of getting energy. The trouble is that even though hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, it's almost always bound with other stuff. So getting pure hydrogen gas is really difficult. And, in, and right now, the current processes we have for getting it make it more wasteful than just using fossil fuels. Uh, so I kind of had this leap that, you know, there's not right now there's microbes that break down all sorts of chemicals and they have different waste products. And I think there's some people doing some research on this, but I really did just sort of like make this leap because it's science fiction and I can, um, that, you know, someone had engineered some special microbes that would break down water or something else and release hydrogen as their byproduct of whatever their other process is. And that you could hide this as hydrogen, but the trouble is that they're still, stinking algae (laughs) and they smell really really bad and so you put them at the bottom of the pyramid they catch all the light they look really beautiful but they smell and so because of that and also because you can't help it if you're building a pyramid city it seems almost natural to have like the tier system work to mirror the social stratification the poorest people live on the bottom of the pyramid where everything smells and so like that is mirrored throughout the society Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, I, you know, at the top of the pyramid, you have the, they're called the aunties, the, the sort of mm -hmm. matriarch, matriarchal ruling class. Right. Uh, what was it about the idea of a matriarchy that interested you to want to write about it? You know, I've, I've always wanted to write, I love science fiction for the possibilities it explores. I love the idea of trying to construct a society that is better than ours <laughs> or just different or like explores and kind of gets at problems with our own society. And I, I also felt that honestly, I'd read a whole lot of science fictional matriarchies that are really evil. <laughs> you know or it's it's the women get control and they're and it's and it's not as if there aren't social problems in this world i mean the whole book is honestly about june kind of discovering the ugly underbelly of her supposedly perfect city but despite all of that i honestly think that palmatis chase is probably a better place to live than modern america and i wanted to have a matriarchy that while reflecting actual reality and not just being some you know utopia utopia was wasn't also a horrible place to live like was reflected certain understandings of the world that other societies might not have come across and part of that was me really deliberately wanting to have society that was less hung up about sex and sexuality and i felt now maybe i'm wrong obviously you can argue with me about this but i felt that a matriarchal society would be much would have much less interest than a patriarchy in enforcing uh social and gender norms in the same way well, yeah, let's talk about that, because at the center of the story uh, is a love triangle, uh, like mm -hmm. in a lot of YA books. But in this case, it's uh, a female best friend and a male best friend who both fall in love with the same boy, essentially, who's the, the, the new Summer King. Yes. Um, so, yeah, could you just, just talk about the, the dynamics of, of that kind of relationship? So the other thing that I like a lot are love triangles, which is weird, because honestly, most of the love triangles that I read these days make me crazy. But it turns out that they make me crazy because for some reason I am very fascinated by the dynamic of three people having a very intense relationship with each other. I think part of the reason why I don't like a lot of love triangles is that you only see, you know, there's usually, right, there's like two guys and then there's a girl. And the guys, if they have any relationship with each other at all, just hate each other. And the girl sort of is like, oh, should I have one? And should I have the other? And... You know, to me, that's kind of a boring way of doing it. I, it seems to me that if you're really going to be like, having a genuine connection with two people, those other two people would also have an interesting relationship with each other. And that jealousy, while a real and important emotion, isn't the only one. And it seems to me that I wish it could be subordinated a little bit more just to explore the other things that could happen between three people in that kind of situation. In the case of my book, it's a little different because, of course, Enki, the Summer King, isn't going to live more than a year. And he, as you know, is kind of the refrain throughout the book, everyone knows that the Summer King screw like mayflies. Like, he's not even sort of pretending to be monogamous or choosing between one or the other. This is not in his idea of a relationship, and it's not in either June or Jill's idea of a relationship. And so his promiscuity sort of turns that on its head because it makes it even more difficult for them to be jealous of each other, despite the fact that that also exists anyway. So I guess what I, the real reason that I liked it is because it could get so complicated and hopefully complicated in a way that feels more real to people. I think I got to make it so that the gender identity of each of those characters mattered less than all of the other stuff between them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting and maybe important thing to do, especially in young adult literature. 
Yeah, well, I mean, what sort of response have you gotten to that from readers and parents and stuff like that? You know, what's weird is that I have not really. <laughs> I mean, maybe that the parents haven't found me yet or something. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes when I describe this book to people, they say, wow, like, this is sort of interesting. And, and they kind of look sort of amused. But I never had anybody really challenge me. I had um, a bunch of teenage boys actually have told me how much they love this book, which color me surprised. <laughs> I've never been more pleased with the demographic that I had not expected to ca- capture. But, um, you know, especially I remember I was at a t- talking at a school recently and this teenage boy was asking me, you know, when did you get the idea uh, for Jill and, you know, to make him gay and to love Enki? And I, you know, and that was actually an interesting question because when I, he asked me that I realized that I had right until the moment of starting to write this book had sort of vaguely intended for June's best friend to be a girl and then as I was typing it just sort of turn Jill into Jill and that sort of launched the whole book for me but it was very strange because I I it, it made me realize that I had not been really planning what ended up being a really central element of the book until the moment of writing it uh-huh. well so, so why do, why did you expect that boys maybe wouldn't be into it as much and what do you think boys the boys you've talked to what do they see in it maybe that you weren't expecting you know, I think I think part of it is just my own, it's just a silly prejudice I had, which clearly I shouldn't have had, um, is that a lot of times, a lot of adult readers and writers and educators will really bemoan the lack of books for boys now. Boys aren't reading because all of these women write YA, you know, and their main characters are all girls. And so boys aren't really as into that and they just need books for them. And what about the boys? And we're losing the boys. Like this is this this sort of common refrain. And I I felt intellectually like that was a silly refrain because for heaven's sake, girls read books starring boys all the time. So why can't boys read books starring girls? You know, I don't think that it's healthy for anyone to encourage these hypothetical male readers in thinking that it's okay to just shun reading about half the population on earth. But I realized that when I was talking to these teen boys, that actually a lot of them don't have that assumption. <laughs> they, that, I, what I was thinking was that because this book is so much about a girl and it's so much of, you know, like the relationships between her and the two guys are an important aspect of things. No, not in the regular way. It's not like she's choosing between Jill and Enki, but it's, they're still really important to the book. And I had this, this silly idea that, well, that means that boys aren't going to be as interested. And really, I'm just going to have, you know, female readers, which was fine with me. But it made me really excited to realize that a lot of times the stuff keeping, I think, you young male readers from reading books might not be their own preferences. It might be this sort of cultural weight on them by the adults who have much more rigid ideas of what they should be reading. So I just, I'm feeling, I feel great about that. And I, I feel like maybe the answer for how to get boys to read is to stop trying to single them out so much and worrying so much about you know, their, their precious masculinity if they read girl books. You also, you just said on Twitter recently that you got a fan letter that made you cry. Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that? Oh, you know, I've been getting these amazing fan letters. I just, not like a deluge or anything, but like some really special things from people who have read and appreciated my book. And this one in particular was, was from a, a young writer uh, she's a, a young black woman and she's just basically said that, you know, her idol, L.A. Banks, Leslie Banks, the famous vampire fantasy novelist who died last year was, you know, her idol. And she never got to 
you know, tell her how much he loved her. And she really was despairing of finding other black female writers who appealed to her and like really spoke to her and wrote books that were fantastical, but also, you know, were well-written and smart and had, had black characters in them. And then, you know, she found me and I really just made her feel rejuvenated and like she can actually write again. And I just made me feel, I, nothing can make a writer feel better than to, to imagine, than to hear from people who had felt the kind of despair against which I was doing something like writing The Summer Prince. You know, I, I was, I'm fully aware of, of how little uh, young adult in fiction in general there is that's fantastical, that, that features characters of color. And to have been inspired by that and to want to write her own fiction, I mean, it was to me just so amazing and something that is pretty much all I could ask for. So that was, you know, and, that, that was, and especially because I was feeling sort of all tossed around, you know, writing is a, it's a difficult business, <laughs> just lots of ups and downs. And it just came at like a really good time. Yeah, I mean, I guess you said in, in this book or in the um, afterward, I guess, that that you sort of went through a difficult period of time um, mm -hmm. while writing this book. I don't know if that's like something you don't want to talk about, but I was just kind of uh, curious what, what was going on. Yeah, I, I broke up with my boyfriend of seven years. So it was, uh, it was just hard. It's just a really hard time. I like moves, moving around a whole bunch of different places and like didn't sleep in the same bed for longer than a month for months. It was sort of like it sort of shook me up creatively and ended up with the Summer Prince, which is sort of strange because a lot of times I felt like, you know, for writing, I need to have stability and calm and quiet. But there was like no stability at all. And that was where this book came out of. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was right in the middle of the process, right? Because you said you started this in Vancouver and then finished it in New York. and Right. I, you know, I mean, what happened was, you know, I broke up with him and then I was thinking of this book and I just sort of was like, I'm, I gotta, I gotta ditch everything. I'm, I, I can't deal with my life. I'm going to get on a train. So I got on a train. It was a very silly idea, but I, I had some free Amtrak points so I could get a free train ride across the country. So I did that in coach for three days. It was really great, but I don't know if I'd do it again. I discovered that it turns out that you really do need to take a shower <laughs> once in a while. Um, but, oh, oh, the most amazing people ride on trains, and they love talking. Just the stories I heard from people and the people I sat next to and people's life stories, these funny and tragic stories, just amazing stuff all across the country, and I was writing this story. It was just a really magical experience, and it really did just come because I, was, I just had to get out. And that was that was when it started. And then I came back, obviously, because I had this silly notion that I'll just get it all out. I'll just speed write a whole novel in three weeks and then I'll go back to the book that I'm supposed to be writing. But of course, it took me a year to write this book. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you also mentioned, I guess, in the afterward that this went through many drafts and a lot of different people helped you. And could you just talk about like what was the how did the sort of shape of the book change uh, through those revisions? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that the major plot points i think were basically in place from the beginning the stuff that changed was more the connective tissue between them making stuff make sense a lot of times this is true of pretty much every revision i've done of any book uh is that i like being subtle but i like being subtle so much that i practically don't put it on the page and so i always have to have readers tell me this makes no sense at all 
And then I'll be like, but how could you not get all of that from this one sentence on chapter three? But, you know, obviously you might need more than one sentence to connect two halves of your book. So, so just for example, in this book, there was the political system is sort of complex. And the first draft I wrote, I didn't explain a thing, like not a single word of explanation of this political system. I figured you could piece it together, but I realized in hindsight that you could only piece it together if you were reading it like you were an anthropologist or an archaeologist, like going like line by line through my work and writing down all of the dates I provided and then like working out the clues on a scratch sheet. Like that was the only method you could have used to figure out the system because I didn't explain anything at all. And so I, I realized that I had a problem, which almost all science fiction and fantasy eventually runs up against, which is that someone in a society isn't going to explain their society the same way that someone outside of it is going to explain it. But unfortunately, you have to find some method of explaining it to people who are outside of your society because your society is fictional. <laughs> and so the people outside of it are all of your readers. And some people just throw you in and do not care. And that's what I like to be. But the trouble is that that really makes it almost impossible to read, especially when, in this case, the political system is not incidental. It's really central to the plot. So a lot of my drafts are me wrangling with my pre-readers going, okay, now does it make sense? Now does it make sense? And then finally I made it make sense. And then it got to my editor, you know, my editor bought it. And he his first comment on that draft was, boy, you over-explained everything. And I was like, are you joking? <laughs> I said so much. So I, I mean, it was hilarious, but he was right. I had, I'd gone so crazy trying to figure out how to explain everything to everybody that he, who was kind of like more on my side of the scale of not wanting things explained to him, just said, you know, cut out this scene, <laughs> cut out this paragraph, and then it'll be okay. So it was sort of, I ended up having, I went from one extreme to the other and then kind of back to the middle again. And I know that there are people who read it now and are still a little baffled by the political system, but I figure... You know, you can't, it's almost impossible to write a book that everyone will understand and grasp in the same way. So at some point, you just have to make compromises. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the political system is basically the summer kings uh, are chosen every five years, I think. And then they right. pick the next queen and then they have to kill themselves. Um, yeah, or they're killed. Yeah, or they're sort of sacrificed. They uh, cooperate in their own sacrifice, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what, um, like, what, just what was it about that idea that made you want to, base the novel around it? You know, the Summer King idea was probably the moment where I really perked up and went, yes, this is definitely what I want to write. There's all sorts of weird things that went into it. I, I had just come off, the, the book that I was supposed to be writing was a sequel to my um, Moonshine, which was a 1920s historical vampire novel, which is completely different from this book in practically every way. And, but... There's a weird connection between them, which is that I was thinking about vampires. And specifically, I was thinking about what makes vampires a romantic trope. Like what people like about not just vampires in general, but sort of supernaturally long-lived creatures in general, which is a thing that shows up in just probably 50 to 60 percent of paranormal romances. You know, what, what exactly makes that attractive? And then for some reason, I decided to like inverse it. Like would it could you create a romantic trope? Could you create someone whose power was not in their incredible longevity, but in like the brief, intense spark of their life? And what, how would that work differently? And, and I, that leap, for some reason, was the leap that made me start thinking about Summer Kings, which is not something that I invented. I mean, it's a tradition, a kind of social thing that will happen in a lot of different societies and around the world. There's um, Celtic Oak Kings 
uh, in Aztec Mexico, there was the annual sacrifice of the avatar of Tezcatlipoca. It was exact the same concept. He would live for a year. He, he would walk around the city with attendants and people would want him to bless them. And he was the, the most beautiful of all of the captured slaves uh, that had been brought in from neighboring polities. And like for that one year, the God avatar was actually a God and was, but a God that you could actually touch and feel. And so at, and at the end of that year, he went willingly to his own sacrifice and all of those ideas. And the fact that that has popped up so often in different societies, you know, arguably is, is a trope that is even has resonance in modern American society. If you look at the kind of ways that people will really almost fetishize and worship like characters, like characters or people like John Dean, um, people who have like lived brightly and died young. Um, sorry, James Dean. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so I kind of took all of that and realized that it would be very interesting for a matriarchal society to also see the power of that idea and to harness it because you can't of course exclude half of the population from your political system you know even the most patriarchal societies couldn't manage that and the most matriarchal society isn't going to manage it either and so what they came up with instead is a way for them to have arguably the most power in their system but a very kind of limited and different power from the ones that the women have but it makes Enki a very strange character because, of course, you have to imagine, like, who is the sort of person who is going to choose that life, who would have all of this before him, but is going to choose to die young for the sake of just being awesome for a year, or, in the case of Enki, for making a political statement for a year. Uh, I mean, do you sympathize with, with or do you personally feel any, any of that, the allure of that, you know, live crazy and then die? Or are you more of like a June kind of person where you're like, no, what are you, are you crazy? Uh, I mean, like for me, I am totally like June, but I'm also <laughs> like June in the sense that I can, I feel the, the magnetizing pull of that too. You wonder like how they can live so fiercely and not be unafraid of death exactly, but it, it matters less than everything else that they care about. To me is something that I am just endlessly drawn to. I'm drawn to it in, characters and books and onto it in real life. I just, I, I'm so interested in that mindset and the kind of passion and purity of passion behind that, that I think that is, yeah, I mean, June was definitely speaking for me and a lot of the interactions with Enki, that's for sure. Uh-huh. Well, and June is an artist and, and art plays a really big role in the book. She does these kind of um, graffiti type public performance art pieces. Do you have an experience with uh, public art or do you know people who have, or where did you sort of draw that material from? I can't say I've ever participated in public art. I mean, mostly because I'm just, I'm not an artist. The visual art is something that I admire, but am, find extremely difficult. I've gone to, um, you know, some big public art festivals in New York for sure. Uh, but mostly I was thinking about it because I love the idea of art and I also love the idea of expanding the definition as far as you can possibly take it. And so it was in that spirit that I kind of, I wanted June to like always be pushing that envelope with Anki. And so I ended up exploring just because I was thinking about that a lot, a lot of people who do that right now. And so there's the whole concept of flash mobs. I mean, if you, there's a list, uh, the Gemini and Scorpio list, which is a great 
thing where, you know, every weekend the sort of artsy, fun, burlesque and all sorts of other art uh, things that you can do in New York every weekend. And a lot of them are come and participate on the annual no pants subway ride <laughs> <laughs> or which is exactly what it sounds like. You all just get on the train you pretend you don't know each other, and then at a certain time, you just sort of casually divest yourself of your pants and just sit down, and everybody's staring at you, and you're like, what are you talking about? And I love the idea of this sort of art. The idea that the art is interactive performance, art is flash mob, art is just something really odd. And then there's there's other things, people who go to silent dances where, you know, they all have your different music in your um, earbuds, and you're just dancing together, but it looks from the outside like some really freaky thing. Um, and there's all, and there's so much more of that now, I think, because of the internet, it makes it easier to kind of coordinate this stuff. And so that was a big inspiration for what June wants to do and what June does end up doing. Uh, but public art, installation art, I mean, if you live in a city, you, it, it exists everywhere. So part of it was just me looking around and seeing how much street art there was and how much performance art there was. You know, how many people are busking, how many people are painting things, how many people are painting things for you as you pass by and trying to turn all of that around and create some kind of political thing that June and Enki could do for the course of the novel. Well, you mentioned dancing and dancing is a big part of this book, too. And um, you mentioned that one of the inspirations was your father's love of Bossa Nova music. Um, I guess, could you just talk about the way that music influenced the book? Yeah, I think that music was my first introduction to Brazil and it remains like one of the big um, inspirations in my life in general. You know, my dad started listening to Bossa Nova. I kind of branched out and started listening to all sorts of stuff, um, MPB and Tropicalia, uh, more modern Brazilian rock music, Brazilian psychedelia, like um, Os Mutantes and... Um, a lot of a lot of different strange i mean the richness of brazilian music is just really overwhelming to me and just wonderful and was exciting for me to try to portray in the book um you know it's sort of impossible for me to really get at all of the richness especially because i had a difficulty of working at a 400 year remove where it seemed like either i was going to have to talk too much about music or i was just kind of going to have to like do it with a light touch that might not unfortunately convey like all of the richness of modern Brazilian music. Um, but I still wanted it to be like a really integral part of their lives and dancing as well. Uh, just, I mean, just dancing and music is a hugely integral part of my life. And uh, I feel like one of the kind of things that links African diaspora cultures is that like, this is, is no less true for African American culture than it is for Afro Brazilian culture. And I, I, I did want to kind of bring that out in the book. So it wasn't so much like the dances in particular they're doing, but the fact that it's always sort of there and the fact that, that you relate things to music and the bands you've seen and all of that was, I wanted to just sort of run through their lives because June isn't a musician. She's an artist, but it's still just as much part of her life as it is for anybody. Mm. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, the, this problem of having something set really far in the future, but the people are still obsessed with our pop culture, you know? Yeah. Like you see that in Futurama, right? Where it's like a thousand years in the future and everyone still knows all our, uh, you know, all our <laughs> yeah. talk shows and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I guess just if people are curious about uh, some of this music, do, do you have just some suggestions for things that they should, what are like a couple songs or a couple artists they should check out? Yeah. Um, like the song that they're playing in 
the the song that she uses for her like big art installation at the end of uh, the section summer is uh, Chico Barque's Hoda Viva, which is R O D A V I V A, which I just love, love, love this song, and um, it's uh, I think you call it like MPB. Uh, and it's it's just like a really beautiful song about like the wheel of life, um, but Hoda Viva also means like hustle bustle sort of, and so it's it, it like it's a yeah it's a bit of like a double entendre, but it's it's like a really great metaphor for the book and you know in the song too. And so that is one song that I would just you know like listen to Chico Barque, he's so wonderful, <laughs> and um, Joao Gilberto was like a huge. I just love George Retro so much. I just, I couldn't help myself. So and I felt like I could get away with some of this because I was saying, you know, it's classical music. Like he's, he's such a giant of Brazilian music. Um, and so is Chico Barque. Uh, you know, what are the other songs? They actually mention a couple of, of American songs. There's like a really like oblique reference to a Sondheim song in there. Uh, just because I wanted to show that it's because of the way that like this part of Brazil has become like a kind of cultural mecca um, after a lot of other parts of the Western Hemisphere have been decimated. Like, so a lot of that musical influence ended up coming down there. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that there's this is a, in a way a post-apocalyptic novel. That there's been this massive disaster involving nuclear bombs falling and uh, something called the Y virus, which for a time, wiped out most men on the planet, mm-hmm. which is sort of what uh, precipitated this uh, rearrangement of the social structure. Right. Um, how is is that possible? Actually, a Y virus? Should I be worried? I mean, you know, I I think so. I have to say that this is this is one of those ones where I was like, la la, I gotta wave my hands because it's, <laughs> it's in the background of the story. I mean, there are certainly diseases that affect men and don't affect women because of the X, Y, X, X, but I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's possible for like a communicable virus to only affect men, but I figure that anything is possible with enough weird evolution. So. <laughs> All right, cool. So I really like uh, on the, on the back of this book, you have a, a blurb from Justine Orbelestier and she mm-hmm. says this coruscating molten vision of a futuristic Brazil is storytelling at its most compulsively readable. And so, I mean, obviously the story is both coruscating and molten, but I was wondering, is it more molten than coruscating, or would you say it's more <laughs> coruscating than molten? Uh, I, it's, it's definitely more molten, you know? <laughs> uh, I'd say uh, all, that, all that hot implied sex there, you know, you, you don't want that coruscating you. That's something. <laughs> all right, great. Um, so uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff you've been up to. Actually, I was reading your Twitter feed, and I saw an awful lot of mentions of Veronica Mars. Oh, and and uh, I think you did. You did I read this right? That one of your favorite pieces you've ever written was a piece of Veronica Mars fanfic. Yes, <laughs> yes, you found me out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was, I had a job briefly <laughs> after college, and um, before I was like, "Oh, this is for the birds." But I, um, <laughs> you know, I it was very hard for me because I I started writing my, my first novels um, in high school and college. And, you know, there was a lot of work to do, but there's also a lot of downtime. And I found that kind of that segmenting of my day and sort of like brief intense chunks and then like downtime, like much easier to write than a nine to five job to the point where I, I really spent two years and I wrote sort of three quarters of one book. And that was it, which is to me like my, usually my output is much more than that. And I, 
I found that a lot of my creative energies ended up getting diverted into fan fiction for Veronica Mars, which I had discovered right around that time, thanks to a coworker who hooked me on it. And um, I was so in love with that show. I just thought the writing was amazing. And the characters and the interactions between the characters were just like so spot on. The dialogue made me just... I wanted to write dialogue that good. I just, I wanted, I, in fact, I have the reason I wrote fanfic was just to figure out how that dialogue got so good. And it was, it was really fun. I don't regret it at all. Uh, but it was, there was a time I realized that I definitely needed to stop because otherwise I was not going to write my own fiction. <laughs> hmm. Well, so do you think, well, do you think that'll ever be public? Uh, you think if there are any uh, Veronica Mars producers listening to this, maybe they'll uh, be interested <laughs> in. Yeah, Rob Thomas. Hey, um, no, I, listen. It is technically possible to find it. I never took it down. I am not going to tell you how to find it. <laughs> but if you try hard enough and you're good at Google, I promise you, you can find my fanfic. And it's, it's all of its sad glory. <laughs> uh, well, why don't you tell us, like, what are some of your other, you mentioned um, The Moonshine, right? Which is, what are some of your other books uh, that are out that people should check out? Um, yeah, so there's The Moonshine, like 1920s urban fantasy vampire they're not sexy vampires this is what i always have to tell people they're sort of sad they're 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 people with the blood problem is essentially how i would describe them um it's sort of like social justice in the 20s but it's much more tongue-in-cheek and lighthearted, and it's adult fiction and then the other books that i have are the spirit binders trilogy except there's only two of them um and that's racing the dark and the burning city which i'd say are, are more thematically close to uh what I'm doing in a summer prince and they're high fantasy to completely secondary world, uh, sort of in a Island culture that's sort of vaguely Polynesian, um, with some hints of Japan. Cause I started writing it when I was studying abroad in Japan and they're playing with ideas of the humans and manipulating the environment, except like using magic instead of technology to do it. And, um, a lot of questions of like love and, the, like, the nature of love there's a the second book there is a love triangle which has some <laughs> affinities with the love triangle in the summer prince you know it's interesting because i wrote those books especially the first i started racing the dark a decade ago and you know i don't know if that's if i don't know if a decade from now i'm gonna look at the summer prince and go oh i can't even read it but i i do <laughs> sort of feel like that now I, I i mean there are people who love those books and i can see things that i did in them that i think are cool but hopefully as a writer, you know, you hope that you're going to always improve and get better. And so I do think that sadly there is because of that a point at which you just want to rewrite everything that you read or everything you read that you did before. So that is sadly the point I am at now with Racing the Dark. Uh Um, And how about short stories? Actually, I, I, uh, if people like podcasts, which I assume they do, if they're listening to this one, uh, you had a story come out within the past few years on Podcastle called They're Changing Bodies. Mm -hmm. And people say that there are no new ideas out there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this is a vampire story unlike any you've ever read. Yeah. Oh, man. That story. Oh, my writer's group. When I gave this to them, you could have, should have seen their expression. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Should I give away the, the twist? <laughs> it's uh, a... This is a family problem. No, it's not really. <laughs> so the story. You know, basically... The thing about it was that I wanted to write a funny story and I wanted to write about vampires. I don't know what it is about vampires. You've heard me talk about them a lot at this podcast and I don't know why because if you would ask me five years ago, do I even like vampires? I would have told you I don't. <laughs> but there's something about it that just like keeps 
like pinging interest buttons. Um, and so I was just thinking about like male female relations. And again, that whole thing where like the vampires almost always tend to be guys. And like, what does that mean? And like blood and what does that mean? And like all of that stuff to sort of combine to make, you know, the funny thing was that the first draft did not have uh, that thing with the period blood and the, <laughs> and I was like, the okay, some- cookie. You might the, say. The, the first draft had the okie cookie, but it didn't have the period one. Oh, okay. And so I was, I was thinking to myself, there's something wrong with the story. And I had um, just started dating this guy, you know, who is now we're still together, live together. And I, I just started dating him. And I'm like lying around trying to figure out what's wrong with the story. And suddenly I pop up and I, I go to him and I say, listen, I figured it out. It just can't, it can't just be the okay cookie. It also has to be period blood. And he stared at me. <laughs> and, you know, that, that blank expression, the one that presages all of my best ideas. Uh, so the first person I sent that to sort of backed away very slowly. <laughs> the second person I sent it to stared at me a lot, but then said, okay, I guess I'll publish it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. And uh, how about other short stories? I, let's see, you had a story in that um, Zombies First Unicorns anthology, right? Yeah. Um, the, oh, and, the, and Welcome to Border Town. You had a story yeah, in there, Yeah, those are like my two YA... In fact, my three YA stories are those. Um, Welcome to Border Town short story and Zombies vs. Unicorns and the... the okay, they're changing bodies. <laughs> um, two of which are really strange. <laughs> What's the other really strange one? Well, the, the zombie one is is like my friends either call it the mac and cheese story or the gay zombie love story. It's kind of me playing with with raunchiness and like deliberately gross language in service of what I hope is a higher goal. But I, it has definitely made a lot of readers go, what? <laughs> but it's also probably more than anything except maybe the summer prince gotten like more emails about that story and more people who are just excited about it which is cool for a short story i like never expect to get that kind of reaction from people but that's really fun Hmm. and then uh like what are you working on now or what do you have coming up in the future well i just i just finished this monstrous novella that who knows what i'm going to do with it because no one was soliciting this novella i just decided to drop two months and write it and i'm I have a YA novel that I finished a draft of and I'm about to like dig into the revisions of. I'm very excited about it. Um, and it's, it's actually, again, a totally different thing from the summer prints. It's modern times in Washington, DC in like the private, the DC private school scene, which is more autobiographical than anything I've ever done. And which is not to say that this book is at all autobiographical, but I did grow up in DC and did attend like that kind of strange social scene of the DC private schools. And so it's about class dynamics and um, the kind of differences between uh, like culturally black DC and white political DC and the ways that those intersect in like these, this hothouse atmosphere of the prep school, except there's a global flu pandemic happening. (laughs) And uh, so it's sort of love of the time of cholera. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Alaya Don Johnson. Her new book is called The Summer Prince. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks to Alaya Don Johnson for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing the new movie Star Trek Into Darkness. 
and we're joined by not one, but two guest geeks. So first up, we've got E.C. Myers, who you may remember from our panel on our favorite childhood cartoons back in episode 59, and our panel on the Star Trek franchise back in episode 64. He runs the Star Trek review website, theviewscreen.com, and his debut novel, Fair Coin, just won the Andre Norton Award for Best Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy Book of the Year. So Eugene, welcome to the show. Hey guys, it's great to be back. And joining us for the very first time is Emily Asher Perrin. She's an editorial assistant and writer for Tor.com, and her essays will be appearing in the upcoming books Queers Dig Time Lords and Doctor Who and Race. So Emily, welcome to the show. Hi everyone, thanks for having me. And so the first thing I just want to talk about is how big Star Trek fans is everyone. And uh, we talked about this in episode 64, so if you want all the details, go check that out. But the short story is that Eugene has watched every episode of Star Trek ever, including the animated series. John recently rewatched all of Next Generation. I think has watched pretty much all of TV Star Trek, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah, except for Enterprise. I didn't make it through all the way on that. I gave up at some point. But yeah, I've, I've seen everything else. Okay, and I've watched a fair amount of the original series in Next Gen and only a little bit of the other ones. Uh, and so, Emily, how big of a Star Trek fan are you? Um, I'm... I'm- definitely partial to the original series. I've seen that all the way through numerous times. I've seen a good portion of Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, although my memories on them are a little bit foggier as I was pretty, I I was much younger, especially for Next Gen. So I I have sort of fuzziness around there. And uh, I actually watched most of Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show is that you uh, did this Star Trek in preparation, in anticipation of Star Trek Into Darkness, you guys did this Star Trek event at the Singularity and Company bookstore. So I was wondering if you could just tell us, like, what was that event? What kind of stuff did you do there? Yeah, we uh, we had a reading with, uh, it was myself, uh, Keith DeCandido, uh, David Mack, and uh, there was uh, Cece, who's also one of the owners of the, the store. Of course, Keith and David read from their own work, uh, own Star Trek novels, and um Cece read some Kirk and Spock slash that she found on the internet. And I read from a book that is not fan fiction, but would seem that way to many. It's called The Price of the Phoenix, which was one of the very, very earliest sort of Star Trek novels that really is sort of Kirk, Spock, Slash, and everything but graphic sex. Hmm. It's the only thing that's really not in that book. All right, cool. I mean, I heard a lot of people describe Star Trek Into Darkness as uh, the ultimate Kirk Spock bromance. So. It kind of mm-hmm. was, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. Um, but so let's talk about like uh, before we get to the actual movie. Oh, and this is going to involve spoilers, by the way. So uh, you know, just be aware of that. But uh, before we get to the actual movie, let's just talk about what we were expecting. Just sort of, what were your expectations for what this movie was going to be like? Well, um, I actually went to see the uh, IMAX preview of the movie. Uh, they did like 10 minutes just before like some other film, which I don't remember what it was. Uh, but I had to specifically see this film in like 3D in order to see this. And uh, and it looked fun. You know, I, I pretty much expected to see more of the same uh, that we had seen from the first movie, at least in terms of the characters and their relationships just kind of deepening a bit. As for the story, I tried really hard to avoid spoilers. I didn't want to know too much about where it was going, but I heard the rumors about Con and I was trying to. I was. I was really hoping and expecting that they would take it in a different direction. Uh, you know, J.J. Abrams and and the whole crew were saying, "No, no, it isn't Con. It isn't Con." You know, and I 
pretty much tried to take them at face value. I, I, I had trusted them enough to, you know, that they were misleading audiences um, and that they would take it somewhere else. Um, but I had seen the, the trailer, so I knew that there were some elements from The Wrath of Khan that were going to be worked into it. So I was still excited. I was excited. I was hoping to have a good time. I really hoped that it would be a little bit more original. Uh, so I was I was a bit disappointed. Mm-hmm. So, John, what were you uh, what did you say? Like, what did you think of the previous movie and what were you expecting for this one? You know, every, it seems like everybody else liked the first movie more than I did. I, I really like the way they reinvented the characters, but uh, a lot of the plot stuff was just like so dumb. Like I saw someone review the new movie and called it aggressively stupid. I think that was io9. And 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 I actually like I can apply that to both movies, I think. Um, but so given that and I actually rewatched the first one in, you know, in preparation for doing this episode and also for for seeing the new movie. And, you know, it's it's a fun movie, but uh, the first one, I mean, it's a fun movie, but then it's just like there's so many logical problems with the plot and it just like scientific problems. It's just like, oh, there's like there's a certain amount of stuff I can take in this kind of movie. And, and there's just some things that just like go beyond the realm of like me being able to suspend my disbelief. Um, and as far as avoiding spoilers and stuff, I do have a bone to pick with tour.com, Emily, <laughs> um, oh, dear. because <laughs> at some point they posted, I don't know who it was, but somebody posted a news item about how Benedict Cumberbatch's character was con. And it's like, it was right in the freaking headline. Well, I can I can tell you part of the reason I think that that headline emerged the way it did was because we didn't believe them because we've mm-hmm. been hearing so many rumors at that point. Anyway, we were like, sure, he's con. Yeah. OK. <laughs> and I think that as a result, it was just put up because we were like, yeah. And now we're expecting in a week that we're going to have to put the same headline up redacted because someone's going to go, nope, you're wrong. It's, it's you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be Gary Mitchell again. <laughs> so, Emily, I mean, what did you think of uh the first movie and uh, what were your expectations going into this one? I, I loved the first movie mainly because, uh, you know, I, I was just really excited to be reunited with the characters and the, the plot didn't really matter all that much to me. I also thought it was pretty, I thought it was a pretty gutsy move to say that, you know, to especially there were going to be people in that theater who had never seen Star Trek before and they established their universe by saying, this is an alternate dimension version of a thing that you've potentially never seen. Just deal with it. And I was like, okay, that I, I enjoyed that. I was already sort of prepared for the second movie not to live up. I think it's always hard for second movies. And I had heard the rumors, of course, about Khan, because that was there from the beginning, especially when they were talking about potentially casting Benicio Del Toro. And I think mm. um, I, I was sort of waiting for that to come. The one thing that I was very proud of myself for was I remembered when they did the the trailer and they showed, you know, Spock's hand on one side of the glass and someone else's hand. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at it and I went, that's Kirk's hand. And they're reversing mm-hmm. that scene. I knew it. And I was just so adamant about it. And everyone was going, no, no, no. They, they saw Benedict Cumberbatch's hand in a different scene going through the glass. It's him. And I was, I was so sure. And I ended up right. I was mm-hmm. very happy. So I was really annoyed because um, pretty much, I think, either the day before Star Trek came out or like around the, the release before I could even see it. I didn't see the article, the news item that John had mentioned, but... Um, I saw they posted another article at Twitter.com that said, why are we so fascinated with the Wrath of Khan? And I was like, mm. all right, there's only mm. one reason to be posting this like right now, you know? And so you start seeing a lot of Khan-related posts. So even though they're not in and of themselves spoilers, they're very existent to the spoiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, that's why I caught an advanced screening of it. So. <laughs> yeah, so I was actually surprised when it turned out to be Khan because, you know, obviously that was sort of the first thing you think at the end of the next movie, the next one, you're like, oh, they're going to do like a Wrath of Khan remix. 
Um, but then they, they're, I saw rumors that it was going to be this guy named John Harrison or something. And, you know, so I, I, I sort of bought the, uh, the red herring there. So it was, it was kind of cool, you know, cause I, like I said, it was an advanced screening, like one fifth of the crowd was dressed in Starfleet uniforms. And so people just started cheering at that point. I guess mm-hmm. I'm getting a little ahead of myself there though. Mm-hmm. But like in terms of Star Trek 2009, I really love that movie. Um, I think that movie is a testament to how much I can get into a movie when I love the characters and it's entertaining, even mm-hmm. when it has huge, huge plot problems. And I actually, it's one of the very few movies in the past couple of years that I actually bought so I can watch it over and over again. But what I found is that I watched the whole thing through about two or three times. And then ever since then, I only watched the first half because mm. it gets so ridiculous in the second half. I just, you know, essentially at the point where um, Spock ejects Kirk from the ship. Mm-hmm. that and pretty much everything that happens after that is just too ridiculous for me to watch it again um i was and i had seen a quote from chris pine he's like this movie is like non-stop action from beginning to end and so i was really afraid that it was literally going to be nothing but action scenes with mm-hmm. no story whatsoever so it actually ended up being a lot better than i was expecting and i thought it was a well should we get into this i thought it was about as good as uh as the first one well, given uh, given the primary screenwriters also wrote Transformers, uh, it wouldn't be ridiculous to imagine that it would be just actually literally nonstop action from beginning to end. Okay, but they they only had like eight days to write Transformers because of the uh, writer's strike. So. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that case. Um, you know, I I was like looking up to see what else they had written, and uh, just because, you know, I I saw that Damon Lindelof. Uh, also had screenwriting credit on this and of course he is responsible for a lot of things that i also hated largely because of the ridiculous awful science that was in it and i was like does he go over scripts and just add horrible signs to it but um he didn't actually have anything to do with uh, star trek 2009 he only he had he had screenwriting credit on this one though you know i just saw but i wanted to see what the actual but you know kurtzman and uh orky uh or is that how you say it orky orsi orsi uh so kurtzman and orsi uh i just wanted to see what else they had written and and see if it was, you know, equally stupid stuff. But, um, you know, they they they're the co-creators of Fringe, which, uh, you know, deals with a lot of crazy science. But I mean, that's the whole premise of the show. So it works there. Um, and, it, and I don't feel like my intelligence is being insulted on a regular basis when I watch Fringe necessarily. Whereas with the Star Trek movies, it, 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 it like does feel like that a lot. I mean, even though they are, you know, even though they are enjoyable and I really like the characters like you guys were saying, it's just like it. I mean, I, I just hate having to go watch Star Trek in particular. And have to turn off my brain completely, you know, because Star Trek never, never was like completely rigorous with their science and stuff. But I mean, usually it at least was logically like I could follow it along logically, even if I had to sort of make an exception for like whatever scientific principle they're sort of skirting around or talking around <laughs> in order to make the plot work. OK, so so Emily, just overall, what were you said you really liked the first one. What did you think about this one? You know, I, I because I went in sort of thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be OK with this. I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I, I expected to. I there were just a couple things that I actually wanted to be done differently that had less to do with the science and more to do with um. as soon as we had the sort of like buddy, buddy, Kirk and Khan thing going on where they were all working together. I was like, ah, oh, I kind of wish that this had been the whole film, them working with him and thinking he was OK. And then Spock talking to him older, his older self and finding out that this guy was bad news and trying mm. to tell everyone and no one listening up until the very end. And him, you know, because since it is an alternate timeline and Khan has been contacted in a way that that he wasn't in the original series, 
I thought it was actually reasonable that we could have believed potentially that maybe he was a different guy and that he wasn't gonna he wasn't going to interact with Kirk and his crew the way that he did in the original timeline. Although, I mean, Khan predates, you know, Nero messing with their timeline. So his character was literally frozen, you know, in time. And so when he was reawakened, you have to expect that he's still as ambitious, as um, manipulative as the version that we saw in the past. But I also liked that sort of guesswork, you know, like maybe he's genuine here. Yeah, there was there was definitely a point in the middle of the movie where I thought I wasn't sure if it was going to be some awesome switcheroo where Khan was going to turn out to be an you know an ally essentially through the course of the whole movie, which I thought would have been really really interesting. But you know, like so so often the trailers give away the whole story, and um, and so I felt like I kind of had I sort of knew the whole story going into this from the third trailer, and I was like, what a masterful thing that would be if. Khan doesn't end up being the main villain and they've just really deceptively edited the trailer to make it look like he is like that Mm -hmm. would actually be pretty clever you know yeah in a way Peter Weller was really the main villain so I mean that's almost true well it's sort of in the middle of the movie you know Mm -hmm. by the end of the movie Khan's basically the main villain you know Mm -hmm. the the fact that they brought in so many references to Star Trek like even uh, Peter Weller in like section 31 they Mm -hmm. pulled that out of DS9 Mm-hmm. You know, and and that was totally unexpected. Well, what, could you just explain that, Eugene? What is Section Thirty-One? So Section Thirty-One is this um, secret arm of Starfleet that's not supposed to exist, and they're just basically doing like the black ops stuff. And they turn up on Deep Space Nine, uh, I think, in conjunction with, uh, I think it was like Bashir. They were trying to recruit him to do these like missions for them and they just they are the dark side of starfleet you know and starfleet is supposed to be pure and perfect and this is the side of starfleet that nobody acknowledges is really there so being able to kind of touch on that and play with those aspects of the federation i thought was really was really interesting yeah they also had i mean there were a couple of funny shout outs obviously a lot of them were pulled from they did those tie-in comics um where they basically mm-hmm. took original series episodes and used the new crew to see what would turn out differently. And they did, you know, like Trouble with Tribbles, which is supposed to be the reason why that Tribble is on board. Mm. Um, you know, they also did, I believe, Mud's Women. They make a reference to the shuttlecraft that they fly to Kronos. They say, you know, it's, um, we got this from the Mud incident, which I was like, gosh, if you don't know your original series trivia, that mm. one went right over your head. Right. That one actually, so I hadn't, I haven't been following the, um, the tie-in comics, uh, all the way through. I've read some of the reviews at, at tour.com though, because I wanted to see like what the differences were. And the, um, the mud one actually was from the, uh, they did a four issue prequel comic called, uh, Countdown to Darkness before Star Trek into Darkness, uh, which I actually read probably the night before I went to see the movie. And in that one, they encounter, uh, Mud's daughter. And weirdly, like she's half, I guess she's half Bajoran. So that, that was an interesting uh, take on it. And they actually ended up confiscating her shuttlecraft at the end of that uh, storyline. And they say, you know, it might come in handy one day or <laughs> you know, something <laughs> essentially like that. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, what's going on? The, the whole plot line of, of Countdown to Darkness surrounded actually Robert April, Captain Robert April, who was like the first captain of the Enterprise, even before Christopher Pike, um, going back to the animated series. And Roddenberry's original story treatments. Um, so even the, the comic books were super geeky for Star Trek fans. 
Um, and then it, it's really interesting that they use that to set up the film because otherwise that show craft is just a, you know, a convenient uh, plot point that wasn't explained on screen at any point. Wait, sorry, could you just explain what you're talking about? What is Mud? Who is Mud? And what's the deal with the shuttlecraft? Yeah, Harry Mud was the only uh, the only guest star in the original series who appeared twice. And the first episode that he did was an episode called Mud's Women, which was a a very sort of scathing look at, at sexism and and it's actually very depressing. I rewatched it recently. Um, the, his second episode is about as funny as Star Trek gets. He's on a planet full of androids and they won't let him leave, and then end up basically capturing the entire Enterprise crew. And the way that they defeat them is by um being really illogical and essentially doing improv comedy. And then in Into Darkness, where did where did that come in? It was the shuttle that they flew to the Klingon world when they go and actually capture Khan. That was the shuttle that they were in, because you, you notice it's not it's not a regular Starfleet shuttle and they clearly couldn't have used one or everyone would have known Starfleet was there. Well yeah, so let's talk about uh Khan. I mean Eugene, you said you were hoping they wouldn't do Khan. Uh, what did yeah. you think of, given that they actually did, what did you think of the way <laughs> it was handled? Uh, you know, I was, so again, just overall, I really enjoyed the film. I had a lot of fun with it, even even with my reservations for it. And as far as how they used him, I don't know. I feel like they, they tracked a little bit too closely to the Wrath of Khan. Um, and because they do that, I'm not sure how it would be received by somebody who hasn't seen the, the first film. Well, I'll, I'll say, you know, my parents went and saw this and they don't remember Wrath of Khan at all and they, they enjoyed it. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, don't you, but what about the, didn't you get this and this and this? They're like, nope, but yeah, we enjoyed <laughs> it, you know. I mean, that moment where Spock called out Khan, you know, <laughs> and it's such an iconic moment in the Wrath of Khan and it's actually a really powerful moment. And William Shatter, for all of the times that it's been parodied, plays it really well you really do feel and even then you you know somebody suggested in one of our reviews that he's actually faking because he wants Khan to believe that he's been completely defeated um and that's like a whole other discussion i think but um they played in this movie and not only does it kind of fall flat because those relationships haven't been built up the same way as they were with the original crew but it's it actually like people laughed people laughed in the in the audience and i'm not sure that's really what they were going for there I, I kind of thought almost they, they were. It, it felt to me like they were almost deliberately poking fun. Like they sort of went, you know what happens when Khan does something terrible. You know what happens next. And then they did it and everyone did laugh. And I sort of thought, well, you had the shot. You had to take it. It's not necessarily <laughs> in good taste, but <laughs> it's there anyway. When uh, when Spock yells out Khan there when uh, after Kirk dies and the whole reversal thing, I, I actually that's probably the thing about the movie that I liked the most was that whole reversal thing because I, I I mean it was a kind of a cool nod. I mean you know yeah it's like it, it's kind of obvious in retrospect, but I mean like I thought it was interesting uh, the way they reversed it. Um, I thought it was a little bit of a cheat how they just sort of end up bringing Kirk back right away and whatever, and we can talk about that more later. But um, when when Spock uh, calls out Khan, like yeah, I mean it, it was definitely forced, but. Um, I don't know. I kind of liked it because uh, because I like the way it's sort of speaking to how this Spock is like so at war with his emotions, much more so than we were ever given to understand what the original Spock um, seems like to me anyway. And uh, so I just I like that, you know, that his his emotions seem to be sort of 
boiling so much closer to the surface on this version of Spock and in, in that, um, you know, and, and in the scene, he's like, you know, he's actually losing it completely because he's like just screaming and, and obviously showing this anger and, and whatnot. So I, I mean, I kind of liked it, but. Um, as far as Khan, uh, generally, you know, I thought it was fine. I, I mean, I, I don't have like a strong attachment to the original series stuff as like, say, Eugene does. Um, so, uh, and, a, and a lot of other people, obviously, but I mean, because uh, Next Generation's more my, like my Star Trek. But, uh, you know, I mean, I thought it was okay. I mean, yeah, like Eugene, I, I would have preferred that they actually just went into an original direction since it is this alternate history. And I mean, I do have hopes that any third or or, or other future movie will go in a different direction, uh, especially because the way it ends sort of saying like, oh, well, now we're we're launching on that five year mission, you know, so it's like, oh, well, maybe now we'll actually get some Star Trek type plots instead of just like these big movie uh, action mm-hmm. movie blockbuster things, because I mean, to me, honestly, like that's what I disliked about these movies the most is that these are like generic science fiction action movies with Star Trek characters. And that's not why I watch Star Trek, really. I mean, there's plenty of other things that there's plenty of other movies I can watch that have that type of uh, plot to it and that type of sci fi action. And that's fine. But like Star Trek to me, it's like, you know, sure, there's moments of that, but it's more about, you know, it's about exploring strange new worlds. I mean, like and they don't do any exploring at all. I, I want to talk about J.J. Abrams and, and how this applies to start the new Star Wars movies later. But uh, let's let's sure we bring that back up later. But I, I just it doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. Well, let me just say, John, if you saw this on the IMAX screen, mm-hmm. you might have a different opinion because on <laughs> IMAX, it's awesome. And mm-hmm. I'll just say, I mean, basically, I'm with you that I, I sort of would like to see more of the kind of version of Star Trek you're talking about. But it seems like television is the ideal mm-hmm. medium for that kind of thing. And if I'm going to go to all the trouble of going to see a movie on the IMAX, I kind of do want it to have like awesome action, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the scene, oh, my God, the scene where the... um the evil pimped out dreadnought enterprise ship beamed in and it just like fills up the whole screen on IMAX. It was just amazing to look at. So I actually, I kind of do like big spectacle movies like this, given that I'm going to see it on IMAX and I I wish that they would just do something more thoughtful, but I think Mm -hmm. it should be on TV. You know, I don't need to see some deep complex character piece on the IMAX screen. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just as good on my laptop. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. And I understand that that's a large part of what's uh, motivating them to write these types of movies, because they do have it does have to be a huge summer blockbuster type of thing. You know, they have to make a ton of money. And the way to make a ton of money is to do movies with lots of explosions and spaceships and all kinds of crazy, exciting stuff. So, I mean, I'm sympathetic. It's just not really what I'm looking for out of Star Trek. Right. I mean, I have to say it did in some ways feel feel like Star Trek in, in different ways. Like the scope of the story is not Star Trek. You know, the the themes that they're exploring, the questions that they're raising are not Star Trek, but the dialogue, like the, the humor in it and the dialogue mm-hmm. were almost pitch perfect. Like the relationships that they set up and the, and the way that they interact were just really a joy to behold, you know, and the way that they're, that they've kind of owned these characters and they're really sort of channeling the, the original performances, but then also making them their own. Like that all really worked well for me. And to be fair, you know, the movie actually does have some Star Trek like stuff in it, like the, actually the beginning scene, which I actually, you know, I kind of hate because it's so scientifically ridiculous. But, um, you know, <laughs> them going them going to a planet and, and trying to save this primitive civilization from destruction like that was cool, you know, because it's like it's like a prime directive type problem. It's like, oh, OK, well, they do d- violate the prime directive, as they so often do on Star Trek. But, um, you know, 
it's like a situation where it's like, yes, this is a Star Trek type problem. It's like you encounter this thing and it's like, well, our prime directive says we shouldn't interfere. But on the other hand, this race will die and we should go try to save them. But we should do it secretly. My big problem with that mm-hmm. scene is why the hell would the Enterprise hide itself in the ocean? Makes, <laughs> makes zero sense. Oh, my God. It was just like and there's like the first scene in the movie. I was just like that. It, Okay, like that aggressively stupid. Like that's just that line stuck in my head when I saw it in the review. It's like, oh my God, that is totally aggressively stupid. Because like, what the hell, people? Like, wouldn't the best place to hide your spaceship be in space? It's a primitive civilization. They don't even have telescopes, you know? And it was uh, so pretty. (laughs) Oh, but it was so stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Like you have to accept the stupidity. And then once you get past the question of like, why are they doing this? Then it's cute. Like, it's funny. You know, you see the fish swimming by the, the view screen and everything, and they have, um, and it looks cool when it comes out of the water, but then you're like, but they shouldn't be down there. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask the hardcore Star Trek fans Is the Prime Directive not just kind of dumb generally? <laughs> it's problematic, that's for sure. I mean, and they go over it so often, even within their own shows, how, how, how many times, you know, you come into contact with trying to uphold the prime directive and it's still not seeming like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to me, it just seems like a plot device where it's some dumb bureaucratic rule that they're, the audience is going to want them to violate and it just creates conflict. Right. I mean, is anyone actually yeah. going to stick up for the prime directive as like a good policy for a space organization? To um, have? I mean, I will a little bit. I mean, it's like, I think it's too restrictive in, in how it's generally um, thought of on the show. But I mean, the thing is, it's like, I like the general idea of it in the sense that, you should have something that prevents you from just going to visit these primitive races that maybe are not ready for spaceflight and just interfering with their society. You know, if it's a matter of like of their civilization dying, I think it's fine to intervene in that kind of case. But it's like it's just a case of where we don't actually know, at least just from watching the show, we don't actually know what the actual specific points of the prime directive are i assume it's more than ascendance you know like i assume it's like a constitution type of document where it's like it's got a lot of different points to it but um i thought it was just the one rule it's just you know you do not interfere with the development of a developing civilization but then sometimes they try to apply the prime directive to a civilization that knows about space travel and they're, mm-hmm. they're not supposed to get involved with their internal conflicts uh-huh. and that kind of a thing and it's really strange because it's just it, it is left to interpretation more than mm-hmm. a rule like that, like an ironclad rule like that should be. It's a great way of allowing Kirk to be Kirk, though, which this movie was very good <laughs> at. Because the point is, you know, you want to believe that Kirk's doing the right thing. And the idea of the prime directive being this uh, this thing that he can subvert so often to his benefit is one of the things that allows Kirk to get away with everything that he gets away with because we feel exactly that way. And so does most of Starfleet command. He comes back, he says, all right, I broke the rule, but there was a really good reason this time. And everybody Mm -hmm. goes, yeah, you're right. There was, we'll let it go. And that's how Kirk has the career that he has. (laughs) Actually, speaking of Kirk being Kirk, does does anyone get the feeling um, that JJ Abrams and, or the, you know, the screenwriters, I guess, uh, kind of dislike Kirk and they think Spock is best. Because it just like it seems like there's this very anti-Kirk thread throughout these two movies. I mean, obviously he's portrayed as this sort of rambunctious hero type, you know, ladies man guy that like you know everyone's supposed to love or whatever because he's such a scamp or whatever. But um, but like it's like it seems very clear that they're like you know he totally should not be commanding that starship. It's, like Spock should be in charge. Uh, that that's what it feels like to me. And I mean, I think they're totally <laughs> they're totally right. I mean. I mean, especially in the Abrams movies, he, he's like he, he just seems so unprepared and like. <laughs> well, I don't I know. Just 
they, they got a lot of flack from fans in, in the first film because everybody went, wait a minute, you made him captain after one mission in a week, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, what's wrong with you people? And I kind of feel like the point of Into Darkness was to really prove that Kirk belonged in that chair. And that was sort of the reason why they decided to make the flip on the sacrifice, you know, that they, they have to show and prove to the audience that, yes, we know he seems like a total pain in the butt. And he doesn't do the right thing a lot of the time. You know, he's got a big ego and really thinks that, you know, he can do no wrong. But at the end of the day, there's definitely a reason why he's the captain of the Enterprise, not Spock. Wait, what is that reason, though? <laughs> it's because he's got that swagger. <laughs> it's because he's got that great instinct. And I think that, you know, they, they put him in there, uh, you know, before he'd sort of attained the, the maturity that Shatner's Kirk has. I know some people are giggling, Shatner, maturity. But uh, <laughs> but I I mean, I think that, you know, that there is a lot of, of maturity and good grace for Captain Kirk in Shatner's incarnation. And they're just kind of showing you the punk kid version who didn't have his daddy and who didn't really get raised the same way. And as a result, he's got a little bit more to learn. To me, with these characters, the way they are, the way, they, the way they've been rebooted, like Kirk actually feels to me like he would be a great first officer and Spock being the captain, because Kirk can throw out his crazy ideas and he can bring that same level of passion or whatever that people are saying, like, oh, that's why he should be captain. But it's like, I think, like, you know, if it was me in charge of Starfleet, like, I would want somebody like Spock in charge. It's like, it's fine to have somebody with Kirk's instincts there to help guide him, but I want the, the logical, rational person making all the decisions. Yeah, and in the original series, I think Spock often, like, he was too logical and he made mistakes because of it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's, I mean, and I have problems with that on, on its own, but like, there's an episode where he's like, you know, why are these aliens attacking us? That's not the rational thing to do. And everyone's like, no, Spock, you moron. Like, they, they're not going to behave rationally. <laughs> but this Spock, you're right, John. He never, he seems to always do the right thing in every situation. So, like, yeah, why isn't he the captain? Mm -hmm. They had set up in the original series that one of Spock's biggest problems was that he didn't know how to, lead people you know he he doesn't know how to relate to his crew you know um like they did the galileo seven where he's like trapped on this planet with this crew and they're trying to figure out how to get off um but you you don't really have that balance that we had with uh the original series where you have mccoy who has the who's really a, a compassionate person and feels very strongly and then you have fox who's very logical and kirk is kind of in the middle and kind of drawing on both of those resources and perspectives in order to make his decisions while also following his instincts. The underuse of McCoy is a thing that I feel like deserves its <laughs> whole own, like, hour of discussion. I yeah. think that the, he definitely should be featured, and I'm hoping maybe in the third film they will do a better job of that. But I do think that while Spock is being portrayed as the hero in a lot of respects, I feel like, you know, the, the sort of switcheroo with Kirk being on the other side of that glass in the movie was a perfect illustration of exactly where Spock is at and why he can't be captain. You know, you've got, he's mm -hmm. being confronted by his emotions in a way that's um a lot more front and center than it was in the original series. You know, he was much better at keeping it together. He had, uh, you know, he was older and he had, you know, collected himself in a certain way. And in this version, we're seeing someone who lost his planet, lost his mother at a time when he didn't before, and now is learning, you know, it, how to be emotional in a context that he didn't before. And it's sort of the perfect juxtaposition for me. It's you have Wrath of Khan and, and Spock dies and Kirk says some nice words at his funeral and feels terrible about it. And that's the end. You kill Kirk in this movie and Spock 
loses his shit and goes <laughs> and breaks a shuttlecraft apart and is going to beat Khan to death because he's just not, he's not finished yet. He's got a long way to go. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of McCoy, uh, I kind of wondered about his uh, sort of medical knowledge there at the end because uh, it's like, I mean, maybe I was missing something, but so at some point he discovers that, you know, Khan's blood reanimates the Tribble or whatever. And so it's like, oh, Khan can save Kirk, right? So that's great. Um, and so he sends Spock down to capture Khan and get his blood. Uh, didn't they have 72 people on board the ship that had the same blood as Khan that they could have just gotten some of their blood and injected that into Kirk? And then we wouldn't have had to go fight Khan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the biggest plot, Paul, people have pointed <laughs> out to me. I mean, I mean it's, it's kind of a huge one. I mean, there may be some, for all we know, there's something special about Khan that the mm -hmm. rest of his people don't have, but they never established that. So, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's a huge, I agree, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think John, right, somebody mentioned that they thought it was too easy the way they brought Kirk back. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I said that, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, like, oh, you know, in Wrath of Khan, they, they at least killed Spock off for, um, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. for, the, for that movie. Although the way it ends, it's pretty obvious he's coming back. Mm -hmm. But... And so, so, so some people were saying, oh, they should have like really killed off Kirk in this one. That would have just like shocked everyone. But I kind of felt like, you know, that this, this movie, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. It didn't, it wasn't revelatory in any way, but it was like, it was sort of like, hey, remember how much you liked Wrath of Khan? Here it is again, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And that was fine. That was, that was honestly fine with me, you know, for the second movie. And then, you know, in the third one, maybe they'll do something different. But I feel like if they had tried to drag it out and do the same thing again and killed off Kirk and then brought it back, it would just, would have just been overkill. Mm hmm. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. Yeah, just I, I would have, I would have liked it if it was a little bit more, uh, like I don't know, there was a little bit more thought put into bringing him back. And like, I mean, yeah, I get, I get that. Yeah, that's that's a fair criticism of of like letting him be dead by the end of the movie, you know, at the end of the movie, and then you know, figuring out how he comes back in the next one. But, um, but yeah, it just like it just seemed like it was like so, you know. I mean, and the and you know, if you don't know anything about the comics, I mean, the the Tribble sort of was out of just out of nowhere. It's like, what the hell is the Tribble doing there? It's like, and I mean, I get it. It's like you know, another callback to the original series for people who actually know what Tribbles are. But um, it's just like, all right. And why did why was he injecting blood into it anyway? Because he's he's a doctor, man. That's what doctors do. They just inject blood into shit. <laughs> right, um, and apparently that scientific <laughs> experiment is totally okay. You know, yeah, yeah. the Federation's completely fine with you just taking yeah. harmless creatures and injecting <laughs> them with strange stuff. Right, and then I saw, I think I saw an article, it might have been on INI, that just talks about, like, well, of course, then the implications are that people, that we now have immortality, because we can cure anybody of anything. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's a huge thing, like, and, and we're, we're given to understand 300 years ago there was immortality, you know, Mm -hmm. You know, the, the technology for immortality, or at least bringing people back, curing death, at least in some forms, has been around for 300 years. And nobody was particularly bothered by the fact that, you know, nobody really wanted it that badly, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so now, uh, I mean, are, should we assume that Kirk now also has other abilities that Khan had? Only in bed, John. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just ask you guys about uh, Khan's supposed superhuman intellect for a second? Because, mm -hmm. like, in Space Seed, like, that um, MacGyver's woman is like, oh, I need to step out for a second. It's not to go rescue Kirk or anything. And Khan's like, okay, sure. And I'm <laughs> like, no, you freaking idiot. What are you thinking? And then in Wrath of Khan, you know, they're like, we can't go into the Cloud Nebula. It's going to kill our shields. And he's like, ah, screw that. Let's go. 
And then in this one, he's like, sure, you can beam over 72 missiles onto my ship. I don't mind. <laughs> and it just seems like, like, where's the superhuman intellect? He's like, just seems to do a lot of dumb stuff. Well, so in the first instance with uh, McGivers, he just, he's a misogynist pig. So he, mis- he underestimated that a woman would, would ever undermine him. And uh, in Star Trek Two, he was just full of so much rage that uh, he was just blinded to it. And then in this one, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the missiles. <laughs> I think we have to sort of assume he's, the, you know, the Napoleon type who's going to invade Russia twice. No, I, you know, I, I have to, I can totally make this work this time around. This time I know that I've, I've actually got it together, even though I know that countless military commanders have made the exact same mistake. I'm going to try it too. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's him underestimating other people. Like he has such a heightened... Um, opinion of himself that he just doesn't think that they're capable of the same sort of manipulation, especially, you know, he, at that point, I guess, knew Spock, and maybe he didn't think that Spock was capable of that sort of thing, or maybe he buys into the whole, like, Vulcans don't lie thing. I love how that's never a thing with Spock. You know, they say that so many times, there's always this, Vulcans don't lie, and and every chance Spock gets, he's lying about something. So whenever they make it an actual plot point, I'm always very amused. Well, he's half human, so his human half lies all the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, why is Khan? I don't get why Khan. I'd never actually seen Space Seed before. I just watched it yesterday. And in Wrath of Khan, like he's so pissed off at Kirk, and like what Kirk actually did. I mean, Khan took over a ship, and it seems like he was really nice to him. He's like, "Hey, I'll give you this whole planet to settle on." I mean, it seems like Kirk was, you know, pretty generous. Yeah, they they try to almost make it out like he he's angry because his wife dies MacGyvers, which is sort of funny considering how he didn't seem to think all that much of her in the episode. You know, he was happy to have a woman to call his own, but he didn't really, uh, he didn't seem quite so attached. I guess we have to assume that many years of hardship on that planet caused them to grow closer and the grief he's feeling at her loss is somehow a big part of it, I guess. I mean, I assume his wrath is mostly driven by the fact that Jesse, he was defeated at all. And, you know, his ego just couldn't take the fact that someone had defeated him. Mm. And that's that's what it's all about. I mean, it's, you know, not very logical, but, you know, rage. Well, so what do you guys think of um, all the other characters that we haven't talked about? Like, Mm. it seems Mm -hmm. like there were so many characters in this that they kind of gave the short shrift to Sulu and Chekhov Mm -hmm. and folks like that. What did you guys think about the way that they came across? (laughs) Actually, you know, uh, Chekhov was one of my other sort of big problems with the movie i was like okay so they have to get scotty off the ship so that he can come save the day like later on but it's like so so scotty quits and kirk's like hey check off you've been following along behind scotty right you know the ship inside and out and and he puts him in charge of engineering and i'm like um you know i bet there's people who actually are working engineering all the time that would actually be qualified to take over for scotty like say in case he got injured or something you know there's like hundreds of people who are on the ship that are a crew it's like they don't have names, but you know, I mean, they're on the ship and we never see them. But it's like, it doesn't make any sense to put Chekhov in charge. It's like, I understand he's a genius and everything, but it's like, that's not his job at all. He wasn't even in the same department. He had to change shirts. <laughs> the results were predictable. This is what happens when you put a 17 year old kid in charge of your ship. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I yeah. actually thought when that happened, I actually started thinking about Star Trek The Next Generation because they essentially did the same thing. They had Geordi. And he was like the con officer on the bridge and he was pretty mm. young. And then like he kept going down the engineering to do stuff. And then suddenly <laughs> he's like the chief engineer. It's like, okay, maybe they're referencing that. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. 
I liked the fact that they made Sulu captain, but at the same time, it also kind of felt like they were checking boxes. The first movie, they mm-hmm. were like, remember how he fights with a sword? And now they were, now they're mm-hmm. going, remember how he was captain in that one movie? You know, so. Mm-hmm. Well, so like Emily, what did you think of the female characters in this movie, of which there weren't a ton, right? There's basically no. Hera and um, Carol Marcus. Uh, what did you think of the way they were portrayed? Um, I, I know that they've been getting a, a lot of flack for this because of the sort of gratuitous half-naked scene that we have with Carol Marcus and the fact that Uhura kind of seems like, I guess people are accusing her of being a whiny girlfriend. I th- I think they deserved more to do. I think that there's a little bit of getting angry for getting angry sake surrounding those characters where, um, I mean, my biggest complaint about Carol Marcus was the fact that she was suddenly British for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad isn't British. Right, exactly. Her her dad isn't British and she's not British in Wrath of Khan, so where did that come from? But I think that, um, you know, the, the scene... The scene with her in the shuttlecraft was sort of, everyone was like, well, it's so gratuitous. And I was like, well, yeah, but the point is that she's Kirk's baby mama. She likes Kirk. She's kind of doing it on purpose. Like if, if we're going sort of by the, the sort of series canon, it doesn't seem that ridiculous. And, and his response is totally appropriate. He sort of turns around, kind of gives her a double take, like, yeah, of course I'm looking. What do you think? What do you expect's <laughs> going to happen? And then, um, for Hora's part, I, I thought she had some, some very cool moments, you know, being able to sort of talk down the Klingons or at least attempt to. In terms of her being kind of the the whiny, naggy girlfriend, I felt like, I mean, everyone in the movies worried about Spock. So that didn't seem to me like a naggy girlfriend. That just seemed to me more as though she was uh, she was picking up on what everyone else was picking up on, and they were all worried about him. And sort of calling her out for being a naggy girlfriend is sort of a, a nasty thing to do just because she happens to be his girlfriend. Yeah, no, I was actually impressed that she has a pretty pivotal role in stopping Khan in the end. You know, um, she actually mm-hmm. is a pretty active member of the crew. Um, and so she's much more, I think, than just Spock's girlfriend. And I also enjoyed the scene. You know, it's, it's, it's people have mentioned it's not appropriate to have this, like, spat on a mission. But it was, it was pretty funny. Like, you know, he's like, are you, are you guys really going to do this, like, right now? <laughs> And he's yeah, like, are you guys fighting? Like, what is that even like? You know, like, those are really fun, fun moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It was really entertaining. And I mean, I can see why people would be like, look, that's, you know, that's not an appropriate way to act on a mission. But the whole, like, premise of Star Trek that you get all the most important people on the ship with all the most specialized <laughs> skills and all send them on dangerous missions together at the same time mm-hmm. is, like, sort of so not serious to begin with that if they act kind of not serious in a funny way at the same time, I'm not mm-hmm. terribly bothered by it. Yeah, I, I think that the other problem, you know, that the, the thing that's been going around lately is that they had a shower scene with Khan, of course, that they took out of the movie. And I think that really the problem is that they made that mistake. You know, it's it, it, you, you can get away with, you know, what, you know, the sort of gratuitousness of Carol Marcus in her underwear if you're then also willing to give us the gratuitous Khan in the shower scene. You know, when you take one of those well, out. Hold on, there's nothing gratuitous about benedict cumberbatch in the shower <laughs> correct that's absolutely true but it, it does you know it makes them look you know kind of like they're making the judgment call it's way more important to have naked women in this than to have naked men the thing about carol marcus is uh i saw an interview with uh alice eve you know because people are asking her about this and how she feels about being nearly naked on screen and the way that she ended the interview was, was really cool because she says have you noticed that every man in this film cries and I thought that was really that was a really interesting observation. Yeah. 
One thing I was going to say in, in respect to the women characters is uh, not really about the women characters themselves, but about how the male characters perceive them and interact with them. Um, I mean, specifically with Kirk, it's like, and it's like, he's like this in the first one too, and and uh, and he's kind of, I mean, he's basically like this in in the original series as well. But it's just like, could they have made him less of a creep? Well, could you say like what just the way he's like hitting on random girls passing by stuff like that? Yeah, or? well, I mean, he's just like he's such a you know he's such a womanizer, and uh, yeah, just and I mean, like I, I was thinking of like the way he sort of flirts with Uhura in uh, in the first Star Trek movie, like when they first meet and stuff, and it's just like all of it just seems like. It just seems like that's a very sort of backwards-looking view of of how a, a person should be in a, in, a, in a situation like this. I mean, especially since they're supposed to be, you know, in the future. I would think that by that point in the future, that that would be much less common in in uh, way you know men treat women. Okay, but just the fact that he's promiscuous, I don't see as a negative in and of itself, right? As long as he's honest with all the cat alien so. women that you know. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's. Uh... You know, I mean, it seems like he doesn't even remember somebody that is met, is mentioned at one point. Um, I figured what character it was, but somebody like mentions no, it was a, uh, it was an in joke. It was um the nurse um nurse chapel right. chapel right. But then like he doesn't even know who she is, so it's like he it's like he he slept with somebody that he does and he doesn't even remember. You know, so right. There was a deleted scene in the first movie uh, where he had slept with the Orion girl. Um, he used her to get his virus into the Kobayashi Maru program. Uh, and so, like, there's another delete to see where he he sees an Orion girl in the, in the corridor and starts apologizing to her. And he goes through this whole thing, and then he's like, "You're not, you're not her, are you?" Mm-hmm. And she's like, no. Which, on top of it, kind of makes him seem racist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I actually am sort of I feel like they've been a little too cavalier with it in the films. It's actually one of the things that bugs me the most. I'm actually like a major. Kirk apologist in this way because I think that the, the secret thing that no one actually knows is that Captain Kirk is a feminist and Spock is the one who's sexist. Because if you look at the original series, the sort of Captain Kirk using women trope only ever really seems to happen when the ship is really in danger. Where the point is he's like, if I sleep with you, you'll get distracted or you'll tell me something I need to know and I need to save 400 people. And the women who he falls in love with on the series are always very powerful. A lot of times they're smarter than him and they can sort of take him to task. You know, he, he likes bright women um, and he, he is very respectful of the women he falls in love with. Whereas Spock's always constantly making these like giant statements about like females as an, you know, as a whole. There's a great episode written by Robert Block, Wolf in the Bold. When I say great, I mean, it's hilarious. Everyone should watch it where um, they've, basically find alien Jack the Ripper, obviously. And then uh, Spock's reasoning on why Jack the Ripper kills women is because he says, you know, women generate more sheer terror than the male of the species. And Spock used to say stuff like that all the time. And yet, you know, because Kirk is very sex positive and, and always sort of willing to jump into bed with anyone, we're giving him a hard time. And I think that the films haven't quite done a very good job with it. But I think actual original series Kirk isn't that bad of a guy. He's just willing to do what he has to do to keep his people safe. I actually like that they were sort of implying or at least giving uh, Dr. McCoy the option or the opportunity to hit on Dr. Marcus. Like, it would be interesting if they ended up together instead of Kirk and and her. Yeah, it would. You know, I sent you guys that article um, about that, you know, Star Trek, oh, the original series had this very progressive um, social attitude, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I actually I never knew that about Martin Luther King. I thought that was fascinating mm-hmm. that uh, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, 
uh, was planning to quit the show after the first season. And she just happened to run into Martin Luther King. And he says, oh, I'm the world's biggest Trekkie and you've got to stay on the show. It's so important. And so this article was saying, like, has that sort of forward looking progressive values been lost in this in the J.J. Abrams era where it's just action? And I would say basically it has. But um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, I really liked the observation in the article that Star Trek was most progressive and most beneficial when it was just portraying these things as though they were normal. So you just, mm-hmm. yes, of course you have a Russian on the bridge and a Japanese-American and a black woman. But you, when Star Trek would try to tackle race, you know, racism head-on, like with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, the one where it's like the half-white and half-black um, race, and then you have people who have the same colors but reversed, like it just sort of would fall flat because you know that you're being preached to. Yeah, and you know one uh, one way that uh, Kirk's uh, sexual escapades is sort of was sort of a good thing, at least in the original series. You know, it was portraying relationships with alien species uh, as totally fine, and so it's like that. And obviously, that will translate to to people saying like, "Oh, well, maybe a, a white person and a black person having a relationship is not that big of a deal." Yeah, so I mean, I thought that was cool. Although, like in the article, it, it's specifically talking about how there really isn't any portrayal of any uh, any queer relationships. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that is something that they failed to do. Um, I mean, it does point out a couple of the, the situations on the show, uh, on the various incarnations of the show, where they do try to deal with gender in some way. Like, there's a race that's basically genderless, and uh, and Riker, uh, in, in Next Generation, like, Riker goes to have a relationship with uh, with one of the one of that race, and, and, and he's sort of confused about it because he doesn't really know if... Uh, you know, what gender the, the person is. And it's like, but then like, I don't know, like I, it, it, yeah, they never really went all the way with it. And they never had a character that was just like on the show that was gay. Yeah. I think that the, uh, that making the comment, cause everyone has been, they've been pulling for it for such a long time. And, and people have even brought it up to JJ Abrams and so on saying, you know, could someone please fix this? And everyone is so worried about it being done organically. And I think that, you know, I mean, talk about a perfect opportunity if everyone's so worried about Kirk being so promiscuous, then just have him nod at the ladies walking by and some handsome guys. You know, you mm-hmm. you can do that and in no way destroy the integrity of that character at all. Or if you wanted to, what if Chekhov's gay? You know, you could do that. And of course, as was sort of said, that the key to sort of making that happen and not making a deal out of it would be, you know, it instead of doing the sort of double take that we keep getting, you know, from characters in these movies whenever something unexpected happens, Chekhov introduces, you know, he's got a boyfriend and no one says a word because it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, you know, I mean, since they seem to like having so many nods to the fans and stuff, it seems to me like if they wanted to make one of the main characters gay, make Sulu gay. I mean, since George Takai was gay and, and he played Sulu, and it's like, I know this character is not played by George Takai anymore, but you know, it just, it seems like that would be like sort of like, that would be like a, a nod to the fans and, and also acknowledging that, hey, you know, one of the, one of the primary actors in this original series that made this series the thing that it is today is gay. And he played this defining role. And this is our nod to him to make that character that he made famous try to do something for gay rights and to, uh, you know, try to be progressive in the same way that Star Trek had been about these other issues. Yeah, and I, I, it's interesting because, of course, you know, they made the, the comment in in Star Trek Generations, we find out that Sulu has a daughter. And so, mm-hmm. of course, everyone just automatically assumes that that must mean that Sulu was straight and had married a woman and had, you know, a family. It mm-hmm. would be great to sort of say, 
no, he was gay, and you just assumed that he was straight. <laughs> but uh, and he did have a family, and that again is is not something that we even sort of turn and give that sort of you know that that second look to. We're used mm-hmm. to it. I mean, because and and another thing I really I really like about the Star Trek future, just as an atheist, is that you know the Starfleet is portrayed as being just a very humanistic organization, and there's certainly no mention of that in the J.J. Abrams movies, and uh, I don't expect there ever will be, but. Uh, it's something I would like to see. It always bothered me, and I think I mentioned this in the other interviews, but it always bothered me on next year when they were just kind of start moralizing and saying, well, you know, religion is so quaint. You know, we don't have that anymore. I was kind of okay with that. <laughs> I, I sort of understand that. I, I think that, you know, the, the best thing that they that they always did with Star Trek was the, the acknowledgement that everybody's perspective is is their own and is valid, and therefore, you know, when they did sort of sweeping things like that, like said, like, oh, we don't get that religion thing anymore. It, it's not, for me, it always sort of bugged me, not from being a, you know, religious perspective. It, it bugged me from a, that seems unrealistic to me, <laughs> that, that yeah. you're going to get to a point in time when literally no one has, has faith in something else. That sort of seemed like a, a, a little unlikely. Yeah, and they probably won't tackle it, you know, the way that they did with Star Trek V. <laughs> right. <laughs> What does God need with a starship? <laughs> yeah, I think that if we can say anything for sure, it's that they're not going to remix Star Trek V in the next <laughs> movie. Well, I mean, what do you? I mean, do you think that the third movie will be another sort of remix like this, or do you think they'll try to tackle some new subject matter? They've already said Klingons, which makes me nervous. Ah, okay. <laughs> they're already going, you know, oh, we can't not use them. And I'm going, sure you can. You, you don't have to use them. Or if you're going to do something, do, do something a little bit uh, unexpected with them. I'm just, I'm kind of torn because I kind of like them to do something original. But just given what we've seen, I'm not convinced that they can. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, I'd rather them do something like something like this again. Well, which I think they do fairly well, rather than totally botch an attempt at something more ambitious. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you there. Like, I, I would love for them to, to do something completely original. And like I was saying before, I would like it to be more sort of in vain of the original type of Star Trek. Even if it does have a lot of action, I'd like it to at least have the pretense of being some sort of exploration thing. But yeah, I mean, uh, given what we have seen, I'm skeptical that they'd be able to come up with anything good. And also specifically just like, you know, like that alien race that they had on the, you know, right at the beginning of the second movie, like that doesn't inspire confidence in me that they'd come up with like cool aliens either. Like, they kind of seem silly, and uh, I don't know. I mean, we don't get to really see much about them, but um, they didn't seem very alien to me. So, you know, the thing is, like, instead of, like, bringing someone like Damon Lindelof on as, like, the third writer to help out with the movie, like, I wish they would get somebody who, like, really gets Star Trek to, like, help them out with, like, maybe the skeleton of the plot and then, like, let Kurtzman and um, Orsi sort of do their thing on it and turn it into the, the sort of J.J. Abrams-type movie that they want. Did you guys hear about the, did you see the article about um, where they called Khan uh, an Easter egg? No. There's, a, there's an article, and you can find it online, because I think it was just, it went up a couple days ago, but they essentially said, okay, so Star Trek movie, obviously they put a lot of Easter eggs into it for fans of the show. And they treated Khan as like the biggest Easter egg. So they actually started out with this John Harrison character, and this is, they could be lying to us again, but they started out with this John Harrison character, and we're kind of doing his own story. And then somewhere along the way, they decided, oh, actually, this could kind of fit with Khan's storyline. So maybe we should just make him Khan. 
And they just kind of like mushed the two things together and went from there. But Khan was sort of more of an afterthought to them. And I'm not sure if I believe them or not, but the fact that they treat something like that as an Easter egg, you know, when they could have been doing, they could have just made it like an original story and, and it would have been kind of a, a, a lame villain maybe in the end, but it would have been interesting to do that. Like everything except for the con stuff, I thought was really pretty engaging. Well, it seems like these guys should just have tried to avoid making public statements to the greatest degree possible. I mean, I can't tell you how many angry reviews I read referenced J.J. Um, Abrams saying, I, I guess at some point he in the past, he said, I never really got Star Trek. And, uh, you know, just don't, <laughs> just keep your mouth shut. I saw one of the deleted scenes of some, no, sorry, one of the special features from the first movie where J.J. Abrams was essentially talking about uh, wanting to pace a Star Trek movie like Star Wars. Well, I mean, John was earlier saying that you wanted to come back to this, right? Like, what is this presage for how the new Star Wars movies are going to go? Like, what did you want to say about that? Yeah, no. So, I mean, one of the things that really scared me about J.J. Abrams doing Star Trek was that I had heard, uh, you know, back before the first movie came out, was that I had heard that he, you know, didn't really like, like Star Trek. And uh, having seen these two movies now, I can definitely see how uh, that other statement applies to this, that, you know, he wanted to do a Star Trek movie like Star Wars because there's so much of uh, that Star Wars sensibility in these movies that the fact that he took that sensibility and applied it so much to Star Trek that doesn't have it sort of makes me a little worried about how crazy and ridiculous the Star Wars movie will be. But on the other hand, I don't know that it could really be any worse than what George Lucas had done with the prequels in, in terms of just, like, the huge, ridiculous set pieces and whatnot. Like, I mean, that was one of the things that bugged me about the end of, of Into Darkness was, like, when Spock and Khan are fighting on that whatever, that ship. Like, what is that, like a garbage scow or something? Like, I don't even know what it was. They were just fighting on top of some spaceship. And then they, like, leap onto some other spaceship just like it. And it's like, that. that's like a ridiculous action scene. Um, and it's like, it felt very much like that came right out of Star Wars. And so I feel like, you know, watching this, like, you can sort of definitely, you can definitely get some sort of feel about what we can expect from Star Wars, except that it doesn't necessarily instill me with confidence just because he took something that was its own thing and he totally put this other thing on top, you know, the motifs of this other thing, in this case, Star Wars, on top of it. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that that his love of Star Wars will sort of shine through and, and just keep his vision so that it's like, it's like he's just trying to do Star Wars proud and he's not trying to turn Star Wars into something else that it wasn't. Well, no, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I, like when people say that about, I mean, people say, oh, the end of this movie, it's like this crazy action scene. That's not Star Trek. And I kind of have to think, like, in the original series, there was, like, all sorts of crazy action scenes. And they didn't have anyone jumping on a flying garbage scout because all the sets were made out of cardboard and they had no money. But I'm sure if they had had money, they would have done that. It, it wasn't like they were just too, they had too good taste to do that. I mean. Right. Yeah, I, I think. They, they had a lot know, more fights. They did. They had a lot of fights. And I also think, you know, I mean, it, it's funny because it. You know, my my only real issue with the fact that there are a lot of fights in these movies is that Captain Kirk keeps getting into fights and doesn't rip his shirt, which is very important. Mm. <laughs> Don't understand why that's missing. I, I think that the, the problem with the with Star Wars, I, I think we have the potential to get something that's a little bit more polished, if only because Michael Arndt is writing the, the screenplay and he wrote the screenplay for you know like Little Miss Sunshine. You know, it's, whereas Orsi and Kurtzman in, in in films are known for doing these great big spectacles. Um, 
we the screenwriter they've got working on Star Wars is a little bit more interested in interpersonal relationships and stories that take their time. And so I'm I'm hoping that we get if we do get a lot of action that it's a definitely more original trilogy type of action. Well, I have to say, I mean, people I feel like people are giving the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies a lot of grief. But when I saw, like when I saw this movie, like the theater was packed. It was like sold out. Everyone was all excited. And it seems such a change to me from the days of Insurrection and Nemesis when like people were just like, it's like Star Trek. What the F is that? You know, that that quote from J.J. Abrams saying, you know, I never really liked, you know, Star Trek and I, I, I always was more into Star Wars. I almost feel like that that's, you know, it gets misunderstood a lot and taken out of context because I think what he was trying to say was, you know, Star Wars is this incredibly popular thing that lots of people who normally wouldn't watch this kind of movie still love. And what he was trying to do was to make Star Trek the same kind of thing. And as a result, plenty of people who love Star Trek just the way it is, of course, are going to be very upset that someone's attempting to do that. But if the flip side to that is then you go into a theater full of people who don't know anything about Star Trek and they're loving Star Trek. And I don't think that it devalues anything that came before it. So I personally don't have a problem with it. I think that it's nice to see some people who would normally never come to a movie like this involving these characters actually interested in them. I, I totally agree with that. Um, people, they're, they're sort of making Star Trek relevant again, you know. Um, and it, doesn't, it does not invalidate the original series or, you know, any of the other incarnations. And it improves on, you know, I mean, I stopped watching Star Trek because of Enterprise. And for a long time, I soured on Star Trek because I just, you know, I had lost the joy in it. And, you know, you see the Star Trek The Next Generation films and uh, Star Trek First Contact is kind of like the J.J. Abrams movies in a way. I mean, it is an action movie and it's sort of a weird zombie movie and it's, you know, they deal with, um, they deal with some themes, but they're sort of really just the revenge themes um, which they dealt with before. And they're almost kind of shoehorned into the, into the storyline because really Picard had kind of come to terms with a lot of that already. So Star Trek First Contact was this like great action film, uh, with characters that you love. And I think that's what the J.J. Abrams films are. And Insurrection and God Nemesis were just terrible films. And they killed Star Trek for a little while until the J.J. Abrams movies came out. So, and, you know, I love the fact that people are, reading comics that are dealing with Star Trek again. Uh, people are going back and watching Spacey because they had never seen it before. You know, they're hopefully going to watch The Wrath of Khan because they want to understand this film a little bit more. I think that this is kind of like a, a gateway to more Star Trek, and hopefully people will say, oh, there's so much more that Star Trek can do than just deliver, um, you know, action sequences. Um there's this new uh, fan series online called Star Trek Continues, and it's pretty much taking place um, immediately following the third season of the original series. It's as if there were a fourth, fourth year of their five-year mission. And uh, like it stars, it has a really impressive cast, um, including Grant Imahara as Sulu. And um, the first episode just went online, and it's called The Pilgrim of Eternity, and it's a direct sequel to an original series episode called Who Mourns for Adonis, in which they encounter Apollo. And so I watched this actually today before the um, before you guys called, and the production values, the the quality of it are on par with the original series. You know, it's not better. The special effects are better, but they've just matched the visual vocabulary of the original Star Trek 
so well right down to the aspect ratio. It's still a four by three aspect ratio. And the sets and everything are probably as well recreated as they did with uh, the Deep Space Nine version of the Tribbles episode. And the, the script is actually pretty solid. And I watched this today and I felt like, you know, it's imperfect. It's imperfect, but it does remind me of the original series in the same way that the J.J. Ayers movies do. You know, you're revisiting these characters um, and there's just this like nostalgia that kind of kicks in and it's it feels authentic. It feels like authentic Star Trek. And so I feel like if the series keeps going, then maybe that will provide the Star Trek that everybody's saying that they want, that they want TV episodes, you know. They want to deal with those original stories and sort of the slower stories that you can't do on the big screen. And I'll also add, without spoiling anything, there are some incredible cameos in this episode, um, both on screen and, and off screen. So I would recommend that anybody give it a shot. Eric, I guess I just have one story I want to tell. So, so I'm sitting in the theater before uh, Into Darkness starts, right? Oh, I guess I should say, so years ago, John and I went to this event at the Paley Center where it was this event, like, who's the best Star Trek captain of all time? John was on the panel. And there was this other guy on the panel, John Bones Rodriguez, who wrote a book called Captain Kirk's Guide to Women. And it's sort of like like, <laughs> like dating advice, all like drawn with quotes from the original series, Star Trek, right? And and this guy's like a, a crazy character. And uh, and he's like, and, and I'd just like to introduce my wife. And his wife is very attractive. So you're kind of like, well, at least, you know. There's some circumstantial evidence, maybe, that uh, there might be some good advice in this book. But so I'm sitting in uh, Into Darkness before the movie starts, and I just happen to notice there's this quite attractive woman sitting right in front of me. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think that much of it. And then all of a sudden, the guy next to her stands up, and he's like, Hi, everyone. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is John Bones Rodriguez, author of Captain Kirk's Guide to Women. And this is like in the IMAX theater, so everyone's, uh, you know, he's like shouting to this gigantic auditorium. And he's like, and I have five copies to give away to people who can answer Star Trek trivia. And uh, I was like, holy crap, it's that guy, you know. What are the odds? And, uh, you know, so, you know, people answered Star Trek trivia and he was giving out copies of this book. And it was actually, it was pretty funny. I was sort of expecting him to get thrown out, but uh, he didn't. But uh, I thought John would appreciate that I saw that guy again. You know, that's funny. I, I, I wish I had the balls to, to go and do something like that when I had my Anthology Federations come out. Because uh, I was, you know, kept thinking like, oh, I got to take advantage of the Star Trek movie being out. How do I, how do I uh, make people aware of my anthology? And it's just like, uh, but yeah, that that uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm quite brave enough to do something like that. <laughs> so good on him. Uh, all right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap up our Star Trek conversation there. Um, so before we let you guys go, uh, first of all, like Eugene, you just we mentioned you just won this uh, Andre Norton Award. You want to just tell us uh, like how that works and what the ceremony was like and stuff like that. Oh, it was really incredible. Um, so I actually, the, it was really great to be at the Nebula's, um, the Nebula Awards that the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America put on every year, um, as somebody who was nominated for an award because the first ceremony that I went to was in 2000. Um, and I just went as a fan. I went with my sci-fi club from, from college and I hadn't even like started writing at the time. So it was really great to come back to that and just kind of be on the sort of the other side of, of the field, you know, that I so desperately wanted to be a part of. Um, and it was a great, it was a great weekend. It was really nice. It sort of felt like a small convention. Um, they had some panels and things like that, but it was just much smaller. And you were really, it was almost like an entire bar con because people were just kind of hanging out at the bar 
and talking most of the time or you're meeting up with people that you don't get to see all that often, especially for me since it was on the West Coast. I got to see, I got to reunite with some of my Clarion West classmates uh, who I don't see because they're on the other side of the country. And uh, it was great to just kind of hang out with the other nominees for the Norton Award and just talk about young adult fiction with, with people who are reading and writing it. Um, and yeah, I didn't expect to win. Um, if you look at the list, there is a pretty impressive ballot. Um, so I was, I was pretty stunned by that. Um, obviously very honored, but, uh, I was, I was happy to be there in my tucks and my chucks. <laughs> and you won for your debut novel, Faircoin, and the sequel, Quantum Coin, is out now, right? Yeah, yeah, it's out. It uh, came out about six months after the, the first book did. All right, cool. So everyone keep an eye out for those. And then, uh, Emily, you want to, let's see, you have these essays coming up. Do you just have any uh, articles or essays or anything you want to mention? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, Queer Stick Time Lords is coming out from Mad Norwegian Press in June, and uh, it's got essays from all sorts of fabulous people um, and a foreword by Captain Jack Harkness himself, John Barrowman. So that should probably be a, a pretty fun read for, for quite a few people. And uh, there's also a book coming out from Intellect called Doctor Who and Race, which basically deconstructs how race is looked at throughout the entire history of Doctor Who. Uh, there are a lot of uh, very interesting essays covering all aspects of the show, classic and new. So that one is also coming soon, but I think July. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have lots of articles on Tor.com. I, I, I enjoyed your recent article, uh, Why Boob Armor is a Bad Idea. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yes, people people were very excited to talk about boob armor. I, I understand why. <laughs> but so, yeah, so the basic premise is that boob armor is a bad idea because it would sort of puncture your sternum if it if you got hit in it. <laughs> yeah, if you, uh, it sort of pointed out that if if you're trying to direct blows away from your body, it actually would be directing blows toward the center of your chest. And then more importantly, even if you just fell on it, you'd be, you'd have a piece of metal just digging right into your breastbone. And if it broke that, if you fell hard enough, it could kill you just by wearing it. So everyone go check those out and learn all about the dangers of boob armor. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right, cool. So uh, I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, Eugene, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. It was really great to be here. And Emily, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. And big thanks again to Aliyah Dawn Johnson for being our guest today. Thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Metal Beats All, Sir Chud68, Discover EUs, The One Mike BB, and The Ghost with the Most 666. And a big thank you to Michael Whitmore for becoming subscriber number 51. To see a list of all our subscribers, Visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. And a special thank you to recording artist Omri for listening to the show and giving us a shout out on Twitter. You should all go check out her hit single, One Thing, which has been remixed by rappers like Eve and Jay-Z. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.